You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. On this episode, we hear from 2021 Book of the Year Award winners for nonfiction. Gary V. Johnson is author of Luck is a Talent, the true story of one lawyer's experience in the Janine Nicarico case, and a 2021 winner of the CWA Book of the Year Award for Indie Nonfiction. We also hear from Andrea Frederici Ross, author of Edith, the rogue Rockefeller McCormick, the 2021 winner of the Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year Award for Traditional Nonfiction. A quick announcement from our CWA calendar. The Chicago Writers Association is everywhere and around the world at Chicago Writes on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Please like, follow, and subscribe for all of the exclusive programs and offers to help you become the writer you were destined to be. Chicago Writes, chicagorights.org. Inundated by too much noise, each month, Chicago Writes, the podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, brings you writers and special guests talking about the art and business of writing. Subscribe and become a member today with a one-time annual membership fee of just $25 and unlock a wealth of exclusive writing resources. Visit chicagorights.org. Registration is open for Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, March 19th and 20th, 2022, at the Warwick Allerton Hotel, 701 North Michigan Avenue, the heart of Chicago's Mag Mile. Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, was named one of the best conferences in the U.S. by The Writer Magazine two years in a row. This year's outstanding lineup features more than two dozen guest speakers and panelists, including award-winning author Jacqueline Michard, Dominic Pasiga on the importance of place in storytelling, Kristen Oakley, the benefits of critiquing, Renee Rosen, revise and edit like a pro, to Neil Jackson, editing is not optional, Faisal Moyudin, panel discussion on poetry, also meet the small presses and how to get free publicity and more in this must-attend event for every writer, plus workshops, sessions, panels, one-on-one with one of your favorite presenters, and more. Your registration fee includes breakfast both days, one lunch, and dinner on Saturday night at the hotel with a cash bar. Please note, the dinner on Saturday evening is free to attendees. You may purchase an additional ticket if you would like to bring a guest. Visit chicagorights.org for more information. Non-members, join CWA for only $25 a year and register as a member. Registration will close March 12, 2022. There will be no same-day registration. Proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test within 48 hours of the first day of the conference will be required for all attendees, volunteers, presenters, and booksellers. Masks are optional on the meeting floors and meeting spaces. The Warwick Allerton Hotel asks guests to wear masks when in public hallways, elevators, and lobby. Hotel staff will be masked when in contact with guests and fellow employees.
attorney Gary V. Johnson is the author of Luck is a Talent, the true story of one lawyer's experience in the Janine Nicarico case and a 2021 winner of the CWA Indie Nonfiction Award for Book of the Year. Gary Johnson was the defense counsel for Stephen Buckley, one of three Aurora defendants on trial for the 1983 murder and rape of 10-year-old Janine Nicarico in Naperville. The website is luckisatalent.com. The book is available at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Um, feels, feels like we've been here before. Yes, it does. It does. But we're good. We're good. We are. We'll we are. Keep it fresh. Third, third time is a charm. I, I'm, right. I'm a theater guy, so uh, you know I'm, I'm big on rehearsals, and, and I'm feeling the energy. Okay. All right. About the title, uh, Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying, I'm a greater believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more of it I have, which, which I think really sort of encapsulates your book. Right. Uh, and, and, well, there, and there are a variety of, variety of ways to say that. You know, you make your own luck is the most, maybe the most famous one. There's yeah. a couple of others. Yeah. And William Somerset Mom, which is, which is the author of Luck is a Talent, the title, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, he coined that phrase, and it, it does. It, it's a tip of the hat to you make your own luck. Although I, I have to say, I can't escape the fact that even though I, I worked hard on the, on, in my career and on this case and on the subject of the book and writing the book, uh, I, all along the line, I, I've been lucky, very lucky. And uh, so it's paid off for me. Nice, nice. Gary, uh, if you could, please give us a brief synopsis of the case uh, and your role. Well, Janine Carico was a 10-year-old girl who mm-hmm. was home from school sick in um, Naperville, Illinois, uh, just, out, just a block outside of Naperville. And she was homesick and her parents both worked and two sisters went to school. So she was home alone. And on February 25th, 1983, she was uh, kidnapped from her home. Her body was found at the Illinois Prairie Path two days later. She'd been raped. She was beaten to death. Um, And so that would have been February 27th, 1983. Mm -hmm. A time passed. Uh, There was this was was in the jurisdiction of the of the uh, sheriff's. Uh, Department of DuPage County, but they formed a task force, which included uh, Naperville and Aurora Police Departments, the FBI, and they and the state's attorney's office in DuPage County. And there wasn't much going on. You didn't hear you heard about it. I mean, there was mm-hmm. a lot of press about it, but you didn't hear what was going on. Right. right. And uh, f- uh, more than a year later, in March of 1984, mm-hmm. two weeks before a hotly contested Illinois primary, where the DuPage County state's attorney, the incumbent, was in a heated race for the Republican primary for DuPage County state's attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, state's attorney, three indictments against Rolando Cruz, Alex Hernandez, and my client, Stephen Buckley, were handed down. Uh, that was So in, there was some uh, political pressure. I, th- I definitely political pressure. Yeah. And um, in, um, that was in March of 1984. Mm-hmm. Trial occurred. It was a seven-week trial and on, started on January 7th, 1985. And... Uh, Steve Buckley's case, my client's case, ended in a hung jury and was never retried, although they started the process of retrying him. Hernandez and Cruz were found guilty and sentenced to death. Their cases were each reversed twice the second time. Mm -hmm. Those reversals stuck, and they were both, uh, or Cruz was acquitted, and uh, Hernandez was was never retried. And the, the book is about all that. You, you do a really brilliant job uh, of organizing in the book uh, what appear to be a, a, a very complex and somewhat convoluted 
uh, process. You you even quote verbatim transcripts from from the trial. You you structure the book in in four parts. Set up background, the trial, which has its own innate drama storyline and, compl- uh, and, and climax, and Roundup. Was that intentional or simply the natural progression of telling this story? I'd like to say that it was intentional, that I, I, I uh, gave it a lot of thought and brilliantly, brilliantly said it, put it <laughs> together that way. But in so many ways, and, and I, I'm not. This is not false modest, modesty. In so many ways, that book wrote itself. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just did. I would be sitting in court, and I'd whip out a. I get a, an inspiration. I'd whip out a legal pad and start writing, and, and write two or three pages of of the book, and, and know right where to put it. Um, I'd be at home or in my office in the middle of doing something, and the same thing would occur. I put this together over time. And it just sort of, sort of naturally fell into that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, configuration that you just described, but it, it it did have it did have a certain clunkiness to it that I that I couldn't get rid of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when I showed my book, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to show my uh, trans my manuscript to publisher George Rawlinson, who took a look at it. And one, one of the, again another lucky thing, I run into George Rawlinson who. Is just brilliant. Just a smart guy knows exactly what to do and what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. He read it over. He liked what I was doing. He knew what I was trying to do. As I've said to you before, my dream became his dream and he worked it. And he said, you know, we're going to, we're going to send this off to Don, Don Evans. Evans. Yeah. And Don Evans is going to take a look at this mm-hmm. and see what he has to say. As so a I book doctor. With, and he is a book doctor and he's yes. a great book doctor. So uh, he reads it over. And I meet with him at a, at a bar in Oakbrook, and he says to me, you've got to make these changes. And he mm-hmm. basically took, so, took some parts of my book and just asked me to put them on earlier in the book or later in the book and add things move around a little bit. So I said, I can't, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do that without completely exploding the book. He says, you're going to have to do that. And the way he put it was just, he says, not only are you going to have to do it, but you're going to do it and you can do it. Mm-hmm. So he was very insistent that I do these things. Otherwise, I, he said I would be losing readers within the first forty or fifty pages, and I didn't yeah. want to do yeah. it. Yeah. I, I, and, and I knew what it, I knew where the clunkiness was, and what he was trying to do was get rid of it. But I just—it's hard to explain. I just didn't think I would be able to pull it off. Well, I worked it. I did work it, and it worked out. And he was absolutely right. And uh, thankfully, and that, and so when you say that the book is so well put together, um, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, Don Evans. I'm Don sorry. Evans, yeah. And, and uh, a lot of it has to do too, I was a member of a writer's group, the St. Charles Writers Group, mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. vetted the book over a period of about a year, you know, in bits and pieces, which is what we do as a writer's group, and offer some suggestions. Some suggest- that feedback is is critical to an author, especially a, a first-time author. I, yes, and I had beta readers too. No, yeah, I am a first-time author. Yeah. I hadn't written any books before. You know, my short story writings, you could fit into a bottle. I mean, there's nothing. Uh, so, yeah. It's a hell of a way to start. <laughs> it was <laughs> off more, a little more than I could chew, I think. But it worked out okay. Uh, I, I, I think you did fine. Uh, so I wanted to go back to this. The uh, the twists and turns of this case um, are are really dramatic and, and amazing. I can't help but thinking that a lot of crime writers, fiction crime writers, would would love to be able to put together a story with this many twists and turns and culminating in in uh, almost a miraculous the 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 tragic uh, circumstance behind this case notwithstanding but almost a miraculous jailhouse confession which you by the way um 
very interestingly uh, talk about the the subjective nature of of jailhouse confessions. When you're when you're asking about jailhouse confessions, are you talking about um, Brian Dugan? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was a couple things. First of all, you were right there. There's there are actually there are two tragedies in this book. The first tragedy, of course, is the devastation, the, the murder of Janine Nicarico and mm -hmm. the devastation of a family in, in, in a community as well. Mm -hmm. Second tragedy is that three innocent men were prosecuted and incarcerated as yeah. a result yeah. of this. So, yes, that was um, those are the two tragedies. In this case, when you talk about Brian Dugan, again, uh, one of the things that happened that was lucky, Brian Dugan, it, it's so hard to say these things because the, the luck of it for Steve Buckley, Alex Fernandez, and Rolando Cruz is somebody else's tragedy because yeah. the reason Brian Dugan is found out is be, after he commits a variety of other crimes, two, two other murders and, and some uh -huh. sexual assaults as well. So he's arrested. Yeah. Feels compelled. I believe he felt, I believe in a, in a, in a moment of humanity, he felt compelled to confess to the Nicarico murders because he didn't want three innocent people to die for crimes he committed. There are others who believe that he, uh, that his motives were a little less generous and they were more to preserve himself, try to get not to try to avoid the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. And there may be there may be truth to both of those. I, I happen or to that egotism that's inherent in in a lot of multiple murderers. Well, and that's there too. But yeah, in his yeah. case, in his case, I, I didn't I didn't see that. Although I, I'm okay. certainly not okay. qualified. Certainly, but and so there was a big fight. What were Brian Dugan's motive? Was he trying to avoid the death penalty? Possibly. Yeah. Was he trying to help? Uh, three innocent people? I think so. But here's the, here's where I believe he was trying to help three innocent people, because after the DuPage County Authority said, no, you know what, we're not going to plea negotiate you with regard to this case. His other cases all played out. He got multiple lives, lives in prison for uh, sentences for what he did in those cases. And DuPage said, no, we're not having anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. And then he continued to assist in trying to get the truth out. And so that tells me that he was trying to keep three people from three innocent people from being prosecuted, from being prosecuted and executed for a crime that he alone committed. Why a memoir? Well, it's a memoir. There are a variety of reasons. Number one, first of all, there was a book written about it already. There are actually two books, Victims of Justice and Victims of Justice Revisited, which was a uh, more of an investigative journalism type of a thing by two excellent mm -hmm. authors. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a few years ago. That was some years back. I wanted to tell my side of the story, Steve's side of the story, from first person and in a memoir form so I could talk about a number of things, how I felt during the case, mm -hmm. how I feel about the criminal justice system, give my opinions, which I clearly state our opinions in the case, mm -hmm. and um, talk about the facts as I knew them too. And I, uh, even though I lived most of those facts, I still had to do just a ton of research to get all my facts right. Does, does the memoir, I'm sorry, does the memoir format offer you any, any legal protection uh, or is it just a better way of telling a fuller story and bringing you more substantially into the story so that you can offer your insights and motivations? It's, it's the latter, 
Okay. But the, the former uh, uh, the legal protection is icing on the cake that comes naturally as a result of that. So when I tell it in first person memoir, memoir, I get to, I get to just fully immerse myself in the case and say, here's mm-hmm. what happened. Here's what I think happened. Here's how well or how poorly we did. Here's what I think of the system. Uh, here's the law. Let's talk about it. And here are the facts. And yeah. hopefully and I, I know those facts are right. The, the ability to be able to state, here's my opinion on what the, happened here. And here's what I think happened there. Make It does make it easier uh, afford legal protections mm-hmm. that I might not otherwise have. What was it about this story? Uh, you, you mentioned that there were, there were uh, a couple of other books written about the Nicaragua case, but what was it about this story that you felt needed to be told? Well, the, um, I, need, I think what needed to be told, what I wanted to talk about was not just about Nicaragua, but I also wanted to talk about the criminal justice system mm-hmm. as well. So I bring in other aspects of the criminal justice system. And this case was very foundational nationally, but especially here. Right. It was, it was, uh, it's the most publicized case in the history of the state of Illinois. Mm-hmm. It helped, it was the, probably the most significant single factor bring down the death penalty in the state of Illinois. And it's used in other jurisdictions, other states in arguments against the death penalty. The Nicarico case is often cited. As a result, it's important. And, it's, and the written word is, is also important in this case. Some day, somebody's going to look back and say, what happened to the death penalty in Illinois? Yeah. And they're going to look yeah. back at newspaper articles, and they're going to look back on maybe news clips and things like that. They're also going to look back on books. They're going to look back on uh, victims of justice. They're going to look back on luck as a talent and see what I went through and what I had to go through and what mm-hmm. I was thinking, mm-hmm. what my co-counsel were thinking, the fact that we were thrown in jail for contempt <laughs> of court. Uh, I think needlessly, all, all the things we had to go through just to just yeah. to keep DuPage County from doing another injustice. Uh, there's another book being written about it uh, by an author by the name of Jeff Doty. Uh, and just to tip of the hat to Victims of Justice, that's by uh, Tom Frisbee of the Sun-Times and Randy Garrett, uh, both great authors. So it'll be those, it'll be the written word and the importance of the written word that people will remember. And they'll say, that's, that's what the, those were, that was the linchpin. In that case, that when that got kicked out, when that leg of the death penalty table got kicked out, the death penalty in Illinois stopped. You uh, you have a a really unique perspective of being uh, on all sides of the uh, uh, of the trial perspective, as it were, from uh, from prosecutor to defense attorney to defendant being thrown into uh, into jail for for contempt for for uh, what. What comes across as, as as a necessary outburst in defense of your client, the way that that's rendered in in about a third of a page, and and I'm sure you you know had had that same that same what what just happened, uh, and, and and you 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 talk about it a little bit that it happens so fast, and and I know it's taken directly from uh, from court transcripts, but you you fill in the gaps enough to really drive that narrative and that action in, in an astounding way that um, is, is just beautifully done. Well, thank you. And, and it was, uh, I'd like to take credit for it, but that's not, that, that writing is basically verbatim from transcripts, mm-hmm. a transcript. I was a prosecutor at the time. It was the mm-hmm. second time I was held in contempt of court. So I've, mm-hmm. you're right. I've come back at it from both sides. I was held in contempt of court, both as a prosecutor and as a defense lawyer. So that makes me a defendant two times over for those. But I mean, it, it did happen fast in that mm-hmm. case. I was a prosecutor and I was accused of 
uh, wrongfully accused, I think, by the judge. But yeah. I, I, I did lose my temper when he when he said I was keeping a, 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 a defendant in jail doing state's attorney's time, which is vernacular for you're keeping him in jail, knowing you have a weak case. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once you weakness, once you lose your case, you've gotten what you wanted. What a year in jail while he's awaiting trial or whatever. And it's a little bit of a shot at the prosecutor, although you know, looking back at it, I'm not so sure that the judge who held me in contempt actually meant it that way. But when I heard it, I felt that that's the way he meant it and I lost it's, my cool a little bit. It's yeah. a dramatic moment. It, it, <laughs> it really, it really, that speaks, I, I think, very, uh, very wonderfully to, to the decision to, uh, to render this, this story uh, in a memoir format. Uh, I, I don't think it would play any other way. It, it might not even make it into the book if it was just a, a nonfiction book. Right. And I get to, as a memoir, I get to talk about that. You know, yeah, and in yeah. the first person I say, yeah, here's what I was thinking. Here's what I was feeling. And I remember saying there, maybe it was just a long day. Maybe it was just that I just got a rape case thrown out. Maybe all these things were stacking up. And when he made that comment, which I, you know, should have been. Like I say in the book, it was water off, should have been water off a duck's tail. Yeah. Uh, instead, I sort of snapped and I lost it a little bit. <laughs> and I ended up with a five day jail sentence, which I never had to had to serve after uh, I made an, a, a pretty, pretty good apology. <laughs> Eighty five thousand words uh, make the case for the importance of of great editors. And I had them. First of all, you know, George looked at the book, made suggestions, obviously, my publisher, mm-hmm, George Rollins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, Don Evans, when he made that, those suggestions to me, yeah. uh, they were hard to hear. Yeah. And I thought they were, I thought they would be impossible to follow up on. Yeah. Uh, he, he was begging me, he was <clears throat> insisting and I, and I did them. And once they were done, I knew that I'd rung the bell. I, mm-hmm, I knew at that point mm-hmm. in time that the book was, was something special. And so that was invaluable. And also beta readers, St. Charles Writers Group, as I said before, they mm-hmm. took a good, long, hard look at it. And uh, also had editors check for grammar. It's not that I'm an expert on where to put a semicolon. You know, I think maybe throw them in there, but I... I it was yeah, kind of- it kind of doesn't matter how good at grammar you are, that amount of writing, you're going to miss something. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, and sometimes... Those editors, too, are, are interesting because so you give them something and they look at it and they say, well, you know, you're not making sense here. You're going to have to ch- throw this, uh, make this change here. Or do we yeah. put, how do we make an apostrophe? Do we, is it S apostrophe or apostrophe S? <laughs> what, are you do- what are you doing? And so we follow their rules. We do the things they ask. They'll, they'll, they'll throw in some ideas for mm-hmm. the book, too, some more so, uh, substantive things. And so they, were, they contributed there as well. Last quick question. Um- you you put this in the at the front of the book, which I think is so incredibly important as a primer to to get past a lot of the the, the misunderstandings that that most of us harbor about about the legal system, where you talk about the special responsibilities of of a prosecutor. Uh, as I said earlier, there's fair in our mind, but that's not necessarily fair in court or fair before the law. And I know exactly what you're referring to when you're right. And there's basically two major responsibilities and and they work hand in hand. First one is is the the job of a prosecutor is not just to win cases, but also to seek justice. Mm -hmm. That's that's very important. And people need to, to realize that. And that's not, even though I believe that, that's not my idea. I didn't come up with that. That's from a Supreme Court opinion from years ago. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court. 
this to go along with that as a corollary to that. And I put this in the front of the book, too. There was a Supreme Court case uh, and uh, an Illinois Supreme Court rule. And the, the, the rule is actually called the Brady Rule. And people have heard of it. And the Brady Rule basically requires prosecutors to turn over to the defense any evidence that tends to be tends to negate guilt of the defendant or is favorable for the defendant and tends to mitigate sentence, either mm -hmm, one. Mm -hmm. um, and some people don't think that that's fair, but there's a lot of good reasons for it. And the, the main one is, is, as I said before, the main primary responsibility of a prosecutor is to seek justice, not just to gain victories. Also, it's important because you, you don't want uh, unjust convictions. Look what happened in the Nicarico case. Um, look what ha look what happens. You read about them from time to yeah. time, and, and where there's a a wrongful conviction, and then you find out later on that prosecutors were withholding information from defendants. Uh, so you don't want those. You don't for obvious reasons. You don't want people convicted of crimes they did not com commit. Yeah. And then finally, the last reason for it is because the state's attorneys and the prosecutors and U.S. attorneys in the federal court. They had their their resources are vastly superior to that of a defendant who can barely scrape up enough money to pay their lawyer, much less pay an investigator or yeah. pay for expert witnesses and whatnot. So the state has all that money. They have police departments. They have finances. They have investigators in, in their prosecutorial offices. Mm -hmm. And when they come across those items of things that negate guilt, they have to be turned over. You think uh, Stephen Buckley and his family. Have have they seen the book and do they have any thoughts on it? I've given it to Steve and I've given him okay. a number of copies of the book. Okay. And um, yes, they, they, they enjoyed the book. They liked it. Obviously, I had to get some permission from Steve because I talk about things that he tells me in the book from, from time to time in the book. So, yeah, uh, I think they like the book. Attorney Gary V. Johnson is the author of Luck is a Talent, the true story of one lawyer's experience in the Janine Nicarico case and a 2021 winner of the CWA Indie Nonfiction Award for Book of the Year. Gary Johnson was the defense counsel for Stephen Buckley, one of three Aurora defendants on trial for the 1983 murder and rape of 10-year-old Janine Nicarico in Naperville. The website is luckisatalent.com. The book is available at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Gary, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure. A quick announcement from our CWA calendar. The Chicago Writers Association is everywhere and around the world at Chicago Writes on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Please like, follow, and subscribe for all of the exclusive programs and offers to help you become the writer you were destined to be. Chicago Writes, chicagorights.org. Inundated by too much noise, each month, Chicago Writes, the podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, brings you writers and special guests talking about the art and business of writing. Subscribe and become a member today with a one-time annual membership fee of just $25 and unlock a wealth of exclusive writing resources. Visit chicagorights.org. Registration is open for Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, March 19th and 20th, 
2022 at the Warwick Allerton Hotel, 701 North Michigan Avenue, the heart of Chicago's Mag Mile. Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference was named one of the best conferences in the U.S. by the Writer Magazine two years in a row. This year's outstanding lineup features more than two dozen guest speakers and panelists, including award-winning author Jacqueline Michard, Dominic Pasiga on the importance of place in storytelling, Kristen Oakley, the benefits of critiquing, Renee Rosen, revise and edit like a pro, to Neil Jackson, editing is not optional, Faiza Moyudin, panel discussion on poetry, also meet the small presses and how to get free publicity and more in this must-attend event for every writer. Plus workshops, sessions, panels, one-on-one -on -one with one of your favorite presenters, and more. Your registration fee includes breakfast both days, one lunch, and dinner on Saturday night at the hotel with a cash bar. Please note, the dinner on Saturday evening is free to attendees. You may purchase an additional ticket if you would like to bring a guest. Visit chicagorights.org for more information Non-members, join CWA for only $25 a year and register as a member. Registration will close March 12, 2022. There will be no same-day registration. Proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test within 48 hours of the first day of the conference will be required for all attendees, volunteers, presenters, and booksellers. Masks are optional on the meeting floors and meeting spaces. The Warwick Allerton Hotel asks guests to wear masks when in public hallways, elevators, and lobby. Hotel staff will be masked when in contact with guests and fellow employees. Edith, the rogue Rockefeller McCormick by Andrea Federici Ross, describes the enigmatic and rebellious life of industrialist John D. Rockefeller's daughter, Edith. Everything you'd expect amid the lives of America's opulent 1% of the 1%, sex, money, mental illness, opera divas, personal loss, and financial ruin are all there. Edith is a world of contrast. She donated land that would become Brookfield Zoo and supported artistic culture in Chicago. The book is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Her website, federici.com, that's F-R-I-E-D-E-R-I-C-I-R-O-S-S.com, federici.com. We got it. We got it. Uh, by the way, congratulations on, on being named uh, one of the CWA Book of the Year Award winners. Oh, thanks so much, Bill. I'm so thrilled. You have no idea. Oh have uh, have they shown you the secret handshake yet? Oh, there's a secret <laughs> handshake. Oh, I, I, I let the cat out of the bag. I probably shouldn't have done that. but <laughs> <laughs> How will they do that via Zoom is the question. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, exactly. Welcome, by the way. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start here. I was just going through your website again. We'll, we'll start with the things that you're passionate about, your family, nature, children, especially children and nature. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Travel and dog rescue, something that we share in common. We've got a... Uh, our, our dog Blue is a uh, is a rescue dog. So, uh, so good. They're they're the best dogs. 
<laughs> they are. I agree. Uh, yes. And, and of course, chocolate. And chocolate. Yes. Maybe not in that order. All right. Okay. Depending on mood and the and the time of day, it probably the, those those things probably change exactly. uh, position regularly. <laughs> it also says that you are a writer. You do it mainly for yourself. It's how you think best, explore your thoughts, and make sense of the world. Talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I think best on paper, I think is the situation. Often talking things through leads me to a very different place than than sitting down and writing something and mm-hmm. really coming to a conclusion that way. And I, I find that the latter is, is much more thorough. And I'm usually happier with the end result. It's actually something that I really strive for is what can be left out of this sentence of this paragraph of this chapter without leaving anything behind. I, I try to get there as fast as I can. I think that that comes across really strongly in your writing of, of Edith, which was it's just an exemplary book. I had to kind of rush through it. So I'm really looking forward and going back and, and spending some greater time with it. But I, I did notice that extraordinary economy of, of words. Well, thank you. I, like I said, it's something that I'm really aware of. And particularly because these days, we're all kind of on fast forward. I'm always aware that I don't want to lose the reader. Yeah. But when I'm writing, I'm always conscious of, is this interesting to the average person and um, trying to trying to stay within mm-hmm. a comfort zone for most people. So yeah, it's something I'm really aware of. And uh, I think, I mean, you said you had to rush through it and I know you did for this, for this interview. <laughs> um, but I do think it is a pretty fast read. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have told me a quick read. I picked it up and uh, finished it in the same day. That I think is this testament, and and I, I'm very attuned to this. Is is a rhythm of writing, and you, you kind of you kind of hinted at that, where where you're you're trying to hold the reader. That is a is a very succinct and direct connection between sentences within a paragraph and the paragraph within uh, within a page or or a chapter, and ultimately a book. So I love that phrase that you just uttered of the rhythm of writing mm-hmm. because. I think about that a lot. I think that there, I, I actually suspect that a lot of musicians would make for good writers um, yeah. because you you are constantly aware of how the words are falling and aware of the length of the sentences. Mm-hmm. And, oh my gosh, I just had a sentence that's almost a paragraph. I, I better punch <laughs> it up here and give them some short things now. Yeah. But there's, there's a rhythm to it in terms of the syllables mm-hmm. and the words. Mm-hmm in the paragraphs. Um, so I really like that phrase of yours. And, and you're you're right about uh, about musicians uh, being being good writers. Obviously, if, if they're if they're writing lyrics, they have they have to have have that rhythm imbued in the lyrics. But I know Patty Smith is is working on on a writing project on su- uh, Substack and uh, comics who are all about rhythm. Some of them make extraordinary. Robin Williams comes to mind. Make extraordinary good dramatic actor. It's yeah. all its all about that rhythm. Some years back, you wrote a book for the Chicago Zoological Society titled Let the Lions Roar, the Evolution of Brookfield Zoo. Is that where the, the idea, the spark for Edith began digging through those old archives? Yes, absolutely. That's where I first, first came across her, right? And in fact, the first sentence of Let the Lions Roar is an unusual woman made Brookfield Zoo possible. And she was unusual. So I, I wrote the zoo book and then and then I raised some children and had 
no um, room for individual thought for many years. Um, and then eventually I found I could, I had time to finish my sentences and my paragraphs. Uh -huh. So I went back to Edith and I actually went back to her in terms of historical fiction uh -huh. because I thought she would make a great historical fiction character because she was so quirky. And what I'd yeah, heard yeah. about her, the, the, the level, the, the depth of research that I had to do for her for the zoo book was limited. Uh -huh. right? So I grabbed all the low hanging fruit and I ran, <laughs> I ran with that. And then as I started researching her, I realized, wow, there's a lot more to this woman than I've ever seen printed anywhere. Yeah. So eventually it, I moved away from this idea of writing a historical fiction piece about a quirky woman. Um, Cause won't that sell like crazy. Um, <laughs> I moved away from that to, wow, this woman, she did a lot for Chicago. And wow, she tried so hard all her life. Like even the things she failed at yeah. were spectacular in, in their audacity, in terms uh -huh, of uh -huh. what she wanted to accomplish. And I, I couldn't believe that nobody had ever written anything about her of any substance. Um, so then it, then it became more of a crusade of telling this forgotten woman's story uh -huh. and giving her some of the credit that I think that she is due for some of her Chicago accomplishments. She's she's a study in contrasts. You wrote a piece for the book uh, City Creatures: Animal Encounters in in Chicago Wilderness, and on your website you wrote uh, Edith was once quoted as saying that we must get closer to animals in order to understand the human soul. Ostensibly a city girl, but does that line help us get closer to the nature of who Edith Rockefeller McCormick was? I see what you did there, turning those words around a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so at the, time, at the time that Edith donated the land yeah. for the zoo, it was, uh, it was in the early 1900s, and she it was 1919. She was in Zurich mm -hmm. being analyzed by Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. She'd been there since 1913. She went over for a few months and came back eight years later. Um, so in her time there, she came to believe that Carl Jung's philosophies and methods would change the world. Mm -hmm. So for her, it was all about the human psyche. Mm -hmm. It was all about everybody becoming the very best versions of themselves and um, bringing forth their individual traits and bringing those to society um, in order to, to fulfill our, our mission. So that's where her mind was when she gave the land for the zoo. I don't know that she had a particular fondness for animals or nature. Mm -hmm. I didn't find much of that. She did have some dogs over the course of her life and she enjoyed her time outside. But to say she's an outdoors woman would be entirely false. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she did grow up, you know, horseback riding and bicycle riding and, and ice skating and all of that. She she managed all that just fine. But but um, I, I wouldn't call her a nature girl. <laughs> you uh, you start with her birth in 1872 in Cleveland and you you set up her life in this very structured, very rigorous, even segregated life. Uh, away from the public. Uh, again, she's, you know, she's the, she's the, she's the 1% of the 1% um, or born in, into that family. But she doesn't know it. She doesn't know it. 
um, right. until until her her father has to go to New York, and and then she's kind of uh, thrust into into a larger world and a larger sense sensibility, which yeah. she responds in in a very in a, in a starkly different way than than her siblings. Yeah. So to to explain that a little bit further, uh-huh. it's important to know that growing up Rockefeller was not what you'd think, right? They they were they had tutors that came to the home, mm-hmm. um, so um, everything was really controlled. Their playmates were either uh, cousins. Mm-hmm. William, William Rockefeller, John's John's brother, lived near door, n- n- lived nearby. So either cousins or friends from the church. Yeah, yeah. That was it. So, um, and the church was really their only social outlet. There was a long list of things they were not allowed to do, which mm-hmm. involved dancing and card playing and um, certain types of music and so on. The idea of going to the theater or an opera or something that would never have occurred to them. Mm-hmm. So it was all very, very controlled. And but, they, but they were they they were given given a, a an education in in culture like music. For example. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Music. Music was valued very mm-hmm. highly. Mm-hmm. They made a lovely quartet for children. Um, mm-hmm. Edith had had three siblings: um, her oldest sister Bessie, then Alta, Edith, and the youngest was John D. Rockefeller Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the girls were treated very differently than the boys. Let's just say that when 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 Junior was of a certain age father set up a school for him in New York City. He started mm-hmm. his own school because he didn't feel that that he was getting proper schooling from his tutors or um, anywhere else. And so he started a school for him, something he never would have considered for the daughters. But two of the two of the friends that showed up at that school um, who were, you know, approved for entry were Harold and Stanley McCormick. They were sons of, of Cyrus McCormick, the Reaper King. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Harold kind of became a member of the family. You you touched on this at the at the beginning. Um, had, by, by the way, had you written his, uh, history before? Only the zoo history book. Okay. Yes. Okay. Only but, what the lines were. But at, at least you had that as as somewhat of a of a research template. Yes, although that was a very different process that involved okay. a lot of oral history. It was also <laughs> that was published in 1997. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So really before a lot of stuff was available on the Internet, the idea of being able to access all these old newspaper articles and various archival material and so on online. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, beautiful. Just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No more microfilm. <laughs> uh, th- no spindling back and forth, and yeah, yeah, that's oh, oh, made me seasick. Uh, motion sickness. Uh, yes. <laughs> using that as a primer, what what was what lessons did you carry over to researching Edith? So one of the things that I that I learned through the zoo book, and I wish I could go back and rewrite it, um, because I think Edith comes across unfairly in those first first two pages, which are de- dedicated to her or devoted uh-huh. to her. Like I said, I went for that low hanging fruit and I didn't paint a complete picture of her. And the number one thing that was lost in it was how intellectual she was, mm-hmm. how tremendously 
curious she was about the world and how she strove to make connections between different fields of study and and move those fields of study forward somehow mm-hmm. um so that was a painful lesson because you know that book is out there now and mm-hmm. uh, that's what a lot of people know about edith and it's because of what i wrote it was a limited picture of of edith i hope i learned a lot through that in that um what you put down on paper is there for a long time for a long time yeah you better make sure it's right yeah uh you and- you uh, go ahead, I'm pleased. I, I was also very aware that, you know, no biography of Edith existed before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things written about her during her life and afterwards that were not true. So I wanted to make sure I got this as right as I could. But between the two books, did you find that there's there's a contradictory profile of her between between either narrative or just an incomplete or or maybe maybe unfairness in its incompleteness. Yes, I would say certainly unfairness in its incompleteness. And, you know, the, 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 the sport here of, of Edith mocking um, was, yeah. <laughs> was very active in her lifetime. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as I said, just afterwards, and, and I, I think I went a little bit there in the, in the, let the lines for our book in terms of, yeah, yeah, this lady was crazy type of thing. Um, <laughs> and there was a, there was an element of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to deny that, but there was a lot of substance as well. And that, that is missing. But you are, you were on a learning curve and Edith, we're always on a learning curve. Exactly. <laughs> precisely. On a learning curve. Yeah. 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 You know what? And at the moment I'm, I'm pretty content with this book, but I know Mm -hmm. at some point I will become aware of things in there that are misleading or incorrect Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's inevitable. You know, you put things on paper and, and you find out later on, Hey, that wasn't quite right. I'm very worried about that day (laughs) Um, because I really did try to get it right and tried to be honest and tried to leave my own. But as uh, you said, as you said, there were, there, there are no other, no other biographies about Edith. So you're forging new ground here. Right, right, which is, which was both freeing and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you uh, you spent a decade researching and writing this book. I'm about four years into uh, into researching a uh, a book on the history of light for the artist. Could you see taking less time for for this particular project, given its scope and its detail? Or yes. is, is 10 years? Yeah, yeah. Sadly, yes. It could have been done in a much more efficient manner. Yeah, well, part of that is because I wanted to do historical fiction. And yeah. I kept trying yeah. that, that route. But what I was trying to do was jam an entire biography into the format of historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. If you look at most historical fiction, it concerns an aspect of of the main character's life. It concerns 10, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, it's a segment. But the idea of putting an entire biography in historical fiction is really hard to do and have it still be as accurate as I needed it to be. Yeah, I, I went through a lot of drafts of this book yeah. um, until finally just writing the straight biography and just putting all the facts on paper in as interesting and economical a way as I could. <laughs> which, which brings up a, a really interesting question of what you're able to, to put in a book as far as, as far as, say, 
Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give this example. You, you want to visit a location that was intimate to, to that character, but you're talking about, say, summertime. You're only able to, to visit it in the wintertime, but you want to describe the lusciousness of, of, of that summertime experience. How far can you go as a biographer without crossing the line into fiction. I think that it's important to be honest yeah. in biography. Yeah. And there were instances in this book where I didn't know the truth yeah. of certain things. Yeah. And I think it's fine as a biographer to say, hey, I don't know. What do you <laughs> think, reader? Especially, you know, when your subject has been dead for nearly a hundred yeah. years. You are speculating. Mm -hmm. there, there's no way around it. You take all the facts you can gather and you speculate, you know, you'll get some things wrong. You'll get some things slightly off. So yeah, in a case like this, like that, it's winter, you're trying to portray summer. Let's be honest about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You okay. know, here's, here's how it appeared in the winter, but you know, it, it might be entirely different, but you know, I think readers are, they're going to come to their own conclusions anyways. So yeah. let's just yeah. give them all the facts. Let's just be honest it out there and say like to hear what you have to, th to say reader one of my favorite things now is talking to people who've read the book uh -huh. and saying what do you think of Edith and sometimes they have totally different ideas about her than I did and that's valid too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now I put all the I put all the facts out there for them what do you think you know great I love that which is sort of the purpose of, of writing a book like this in the first place is to generate conversation and community yes Yes, and I'm so grateful for Chicago Writers Association to, to help get her story out there because for me, that's what it's all about is mm -hmm. telling this woman's story. She didn't get to tell her story. Yeah. She was controlled by the men around her in a big way. And it is believed that after she died that her ex-husband and her brother may have burned all her materials. I've got a question coming up about that. So we'll hold on to that for just a second. But I, right. wanted, to get, I wanted to get people a little bit people who might be watching this or listening to this rather who were thinking of of possibly writing history either a biography or or uh, an event once you've decided on your subject how do you begin and organize the necessary research and when when is enough huh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the eternal question yes well, i'm going to start with the when is enough uh -huh. um, because I, because that's easier for me to answer. Uh -huh. um, for me, it was enough when I wasn't finding any more sources. Okay. So, like I okay. said, materials. So when the well runs dry. When the well runs dry, and mm -hmm. you feel like you have accumulated all the puzzle pieces, then you may start the puzzle. Starting the puzzle before that may get you into some trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. You may start to develop some preconceived notions that later research will prove false. So yeah gather all the puzzle pieces, and then start to assemble. As far as organizing those puzzle pieces, boy, I really wish I had a great system. And I don't. And this is a, something that I talk about with some of my other biographer friends is, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is your good system? Because um, I relied on a whole bunch of scattered note. I mean, I have so <laughs> many notepads, uh -huh. you know, legal pads just filled with information and so many notes taken on the, the computer. And then I just had to keep scrambling and oh, where is this? And what book was that in? Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, 
So, so I am not a model of organization. I, I guess I learned a few things for, for future use. You don't um, take any of that research and, and editorialize in, in this book. I'm sorry, say that again? You've refrained from editorializing in, in this book. Yes. Well, of course, it's really hard, right? To keep your yeah. own, to keep your own opinions out of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a really hard time with that when I, I discovered that Edith hosted a huge garden party, very elaborate, big event, big social event of the season mm-hmm. and so on. I discovered that her daughter, Editha, died just a few days after that event. So while they were celebrating and she's all dressed up, you know, in white from head to toe with her $2 million string of pearls and all that, her little daughter who had not yet hit one year mm-hmm. was tucked away in a sanatorium. She, she had not been expected to live long from birth. Um, she had outlived their estimates. I figured out this happened a few days later and I was livid. At Edith. Uh, who does that? Yeah. yeah who does yeah. that? Even if it's early 1900s, and this mm-hmm. is commonplace, that mm-hmm. you know, scarlet fever and other uh, diseases are are decimating, are, are killing a lot of a lot of very young children. Mm-hmm. So I had to really struggle with how to present that, and pretty sure that there is some author bias in there. <laughs> it's hard not to. But people but... are filled with incongruities, mental illness, uh, a, a trauma, a hidden trauma. They can change a person's character on a dime and then back again. They can react poorly in, in, a, in an unguarded moment, hence the, uh, the Karen culture or the Karen syndrome, I, I suppose, where that moment becomes, becomes the encapsulation of, of a life, but that's not necessarily who they are. Absolutely. Right. And we all make mistakes and we all have things in our past that we're not proud of and we would do differently moving forward. But that's how we learn. Right. If you did everything perfectly all along, uh, you'd never learn any of those hard truths. Um, One of one of the things that that I've I've come across in uh, and right now I'm, I'm researching the Renaissance, but going through going through the Roman periods. There's a lot of innuendo and backbiting and negativity uh, about various, you know, uh, Suetonius, I guess, is, is probably the best example where he, he, gets, he gets abusive about some of the, the Caesars. He's, he's throwing around accusations. That was, was, a, was part and parcel of journalism through much of Edith's life. How do you wade through that and uh, either negate or accept those things that are being said? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the best example of that, right, is Edith's chauffeur, her Mm -hmm. Swiss chauffeur, Mm -hmm. who knew her for several years in in Switzerland and um, ended up writing a book about her. So I guess I lied. I guess there is a book about it. Um, it's not just about her. It's about, uh, you know, his life. But a, but a tell-all sort of. It is absolutely a tell-all. Yeah. And yeah. there are things in there that are astounding, right? However, I also know about this chauffeur that after she returned to Chicago, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. several years later followed her here and basically showed up on her doorstep and um, wanted a job or a recommendation or, you know, needed, needed some help. Whatever happened, happened, but she ended up having him thrown into a mental institution. So was he insane? Was he harassing her? Was he inconvenient to her? 
I don't know. So here's this book now from somebody who was very close to her and has mm -hmm. all these stories to tell. Can I believe him or was he insane? I read the whole book and it's, it's in German. So there's also a little bit of an interpretation issue. Going <laughs> on. Right. There are things in there that are very difficult to believe that have nothing to do with Edith at all. Yeah. So he's, he's a great storyteller. He's, he, he knows how to tell a juicy story mm -hmm. and he probably had a bit of an ax to grind because he spent four months in the asylum yeah. because of Edith. <laughs> so true or not true? Can I use that? Can I not? So I used it, but judiciously, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. I would say this is what the chauffeur said. And in some places I even said, could be true, could, not, could be not true. We mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. The chauffeur also thought one of the other characters in the book was a spy. I don't know. I didn't come across that anywhere else, but if she was a good spy, then I wouldn't have come across it anywhere else. <laughs> so yes, as a nonfiction writer, mm -hmm. you're looking for verification in numerous places, right? Which um, might not exist. Which might not exist, yeah. right. And if it doesn't exist, then I think you have to, you, you can put it in there, but you can mm -hmm. say, we don't know if this is true or not. Okay. So a little if bit it, of a preface. Yeah. Right. If it exists in numerous places and and you feel it's been well verified, um, mm -hmm. if there were lots of witnesses <laughs> uh, or lots of different stories that all have the same essence, then that's more likely to be true. I'm going to I'm going to skip ahead here and read uh, just a little bit from from the book. This is right after Edith's company uh, has collapsed with the uh, with the the. Uh, the depression. The second punch came in the form of a lump in her right breast while frantically transferring funds between accounts, borrowing from one pot to save another. She received dire news, cancer in her breast and armpit. Her doctors recommended a mastectomy, which was performed in June, 1930 at Chicago's Passavant Memorial Hospital. In a small world situation, one of the doctors attending to Edith was Latham Crandall Jr., the son of Cleveland minister senior who had, for, who had forbidden Alta to marry so long ago. Some malignancy remained, a fact the doctor shared with senior and junior, but not with Edith. They elect to keep that information from her, not wanting to worry her. She was merely informed that she would have to undergo radiation treatments every five days as a protective measure. She was 57 years old, and yet the men around her decided that she was not privy to her own medical information. That is a powerful, powerful lesson. And maybe my opinion comes through a little bit there, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, but it's so understated that I that I, I think you're you're keeping close to to the facts at hand. Yeah, well, I tried to, but but and I have to say that. It wasn't entirely uncommon at the time for doctors right. not to right. divulge the full extent of the diagnosis to the patient themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it is important to note, though, that in Edith's case, this had been happening all her life, that people communicated with her father and her brother. Yeah. Her bankers were communicating to father and brother about her financial situation in Zurich. Unbeknownst to her, her divorce attorney was communicating with her father and her brother behind her back, unbeknownst to her. That, that's horrendous. That's such a re reach of ethics. 
And it's because her father was John D. Rockefeller. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. And, and, you know, everybody wanted to curry his favor and every, you know, oh, very powerful man. We need to tell him what's going on, but let's not tell her. <laughs> it's it's a magnificent book. I, I think you should be really really proud of of the final product it's a it's a great read andrea frederici ross is a cwa book of the year award winner for 2021 her nonfiction work a decade in the making is edith the rogue rockefeller mccormick the book is available at amazon and barnesandnoble.com her website is and i'll spell it here f-r-i-e-d-e-r-i-c-i-r-o-s-s.com we'll put it in the notes, uh, so people can uh, can go to your website and uh, and find out more about you as an author and and as a book. But thank you so much. This oh, was, thank you. This yeah. was delightful. This was this was ab- absolutely wonderful. And and what whatever you whatever you, you you do in the future, please come let us know about it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this chance to get Edith's story out there, and it's uh, I'm deeply honored to win this award. So thanks so much. Thanks, Andrea. We'll talk to you again soon. A quick announcement from our CWA calendar. Registration is open for Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, March 19th and 20th, 2022, at the Warwick Allerton Hotel, 701 North Michigan Avenue, the heart of Chicago's Mag Mile. Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, was named one of the best conferences in the U.S. by the Writer Magazine two years in a row. This year's outstanding lineup features more than two dozen guest speakers and panelists, including award-winning author Jacqueline Michard, Dominic Pasiga on the importance of place in storytelling, Kristen Oakley, the benefits of critiquing, Renee Rosen, revise and edit like a pro, to Neil Jackson, editing is not optional, Faisal Moyudin, panel discussion on poetry, also meet the small presses and how to get free publicity and more in this must-attend event for every writer plus workshops, sessions, panels, one-on-one with one of your favorite presenters, and more. Your registration fee includes breakfast both days, one lunch, and dinner on Saturday night at the hotel with a cash bar. Please note, the dinner on Saturday evening is free to attendees. You may purchase an additional ticket if you would like to bring a guest. Visit chicagorights.org for more information. Non-members, join CWA for only $25 a year and register as a member. Registration will close March 12, 2022. There will be no same-day registration. Proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test within 48 hours of the first day of the conference will be required for all attendees, volunteers, presenters, and booksellers. Masks are optional on the meeting floors and meeting spaces. The Warwick Allerton Hotel asks guests to wear masks when in public hallways, elevators, and lobby. Hotel staff will be masked when in contact with guests and fellow employees. The Chicago Writers Association is everywhere and around the world at Chicago Writes on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Please like, follow, and subscribe for all of the exclusive programs and offers to help you become the writer you were destined to be. Chicago Writes, chicagorights.org. 
Inundated by too much noise, each month, Chicago Writes, the podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, brings you writers and special guests talking about the art and business of writing. Subscribe and become a member today with a one-time annual membership fee of just $25 and unlock a wealth of exclusive writing resources. Visit chicagorights.org.